You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. If you ask Ukraine's president, and at this point, the leaders of basically every Western country have done that, he'll say he needs help. If you ask him to get more specific, he will tell you there's one thing that Ukraine does not have right now that he believes would make a huge difference. And I'm hoping that other countries will follow the same suit. We're asking for more of your leadership in these efforts. Justin and all of our friends of of Ukraine, please understand how important it is for us to close our airspace from Russian missiles and Russian aircrafts. But so far, President Zelensky has heard no from every country and NATO member he has pleaded with for a no-fly zone. Why is that? What would a no-fly zone over Ukraine look like? How would it work? Who would enforce it? How much would it help? And how much could it hurt? Not just Ukraine, but everyone's hopes for peace. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Abby Schell is the junior military and defense reporter at Business Insider. Hey, Abby. Hi. This is one of those topics that seems really simple, um, and yet it keeps coming up. And we thought we would do a little bit of an explainer today. And and you wrote an excellent piece on this. So maybe I'll just start with this. Is there an actual, like, agreed-upon definition of a no-fly zone, or does it change with different countries and conflicts? Sure. So you're right that it, it seems kind of simple. And there is a bit of an accepted definition in that, like, usually a no-fly zone would prohibit certain kinds of aircraft from being flown through a designated airspace. That's the simplest definition we've got. But of course, yeah, it does it does differ between conflict. So, you know, you could mean you're you're covering a whole country or a whole region or just specific little pockets of a country or region. Um, So it can get a little complicated. Is there anything unique um, about the no-fly zone that Ukraine President Zelensky is asking allies, NATO countries for? Well, I would say that he's not asking for all of Ukraine to be designated a no-fly zone. He is only asking for certain parts of the airspace. Um, It's a big, there are big parts of the airspace and it's kind of unclear what parts of the airspace he's asking for. But that would, I I would say, be the only truly unique thing um, about it. Why has it been sort of the one focus of, first of all, aid requests from Ukraine, but also um, focus of conversation around countries uh, like America, Canada, and, and European countries in terms of like, this is the the focal point, I guess, of our efforts or non-efforts to help Ukraine. Sure. So I think before the conflict started, you know, Ukraine was asking for different stuff from the U.S., from NATO right. weapons or equipment. Um, and, and for the most part, a lot of countries stepped up. Um, and they're still stepping up. They're still sending things to Ukraine. But a no-fly zone, I think in Zelensky's eyes, um, it creates a barrier. But I think it also involves NATO and the allied countries. It, it makes them much more involved in the conflict than they are right now. And he knows that. 
and he's looking for any help that he can. You know, mm-hmm. no one expected this conflict to go the way it has. You know, they're hanging on, and he is just looking for ways to continue that streak of, of of being able to hang on and thinks that you know this is the one thing that could help them the most another really practical question um how are no-fly zones monitored and enforced and if we were going to do that with ukraine how would it work sure so when we say that Zelensky is asking nato or asking the u.s um or canada to support a no-fly zone. That doesn't just mean like the U.S. saying, yes, that sounds great. Let's do a no-fly zone. What that means is he's asking NATO um, and the U.S. and Canada, he's been going to, to countries making this this request. He's asking them to support it in a military way. He's So the way that no-fly zones work is they, cre- they require round-the-clock monitoring. And that means if NATO got involved, it would mean NATO or one of the 30 members would have to identify all incoming aircraft, send fighters to intercept that aircraft, and if they don't comply and get out of that airspace within you know a certain amount of time or whatever, um, the possibility is there that they would be forced to shoot down that aircraft. That means the U.S. shooting down Russian planes. That means NATO shooting down Russian planes. And that is the chief reason, I think, we can all say that NATO and Canada and the U.S., nobody is, is willing to come to the table on, on supporting a no-fly zone right now. So presumably, if they shot down uh, one of those Russian aircrafts, that would escalate the conflict and bring in other members. And, and what could happen then? Like, what is the actual endgame fear here? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the fear is that that would be an escalation of war. That would be an escalation of the conflict, a huge escalation. I mean, Vladimir Putin weeks ago said that a declaration of a no-fly zone by even just a declaration of it, not even the support of it, not even shooting down a plane, the declaration of a no-fly zone, the Russia would take that as participation in the conflict. You know, thus far he hasn't taken sending aid like, um, you know, military equipment uh, as a participation in the conflict, but he would take a recognition of a no-fly zone as participation and the the White House has said that's just not something that they're willing to risk is is you know going to war with Russia, and in the international community, it's that's a huge fear because Russia and the U.S. have you know the biggest nuclear arsenal, and mm-hmm. you know war between the U.S. and Russia. The fear is that that would be nuclear war. That's just that's just something right now that nobody is willing to risk. Do we know what people um, in the intel community or international policy experts think would happen? Like, do, do they support that that recommendation that, yes, this could be the start of something really bad, so don't do it? Oh, yes. At, uh, at William & Mary's Global Research Institute, they did a, a survey of like 900 international relations scholars who almost unanimously agreed that the no-fly zone is a bad idea and would substantially increase the likelihood of Russia mounting a nuclear attack against Ukraine or against one of the NATO members. Uh, so that's that's something people are universally agreed on that right now that's just not a good option. I'm still curious about how this works in terms of procedure, um, because it would be it would be NATO doing it right. But who 
who makes the decision? You know, he's asked the White House, is it America making this decision? If NATO makes it together, do they they get together and vote on it? Like who who actually has the power to make that call? That's a good question. Um, in in this particular conflict, it's not totally clear just yet. I mean, um, I don't think that the U.S. would move without input from other NATO powers. You know, in 2011, there was a no-fly zone put in um, in Libya during the first civil war there. And that was something that was voted on by the UN. So it could be that that is something that happened that would happen here if if it were, if this were an issue that that even was going to be brought to the table. I was going to ask you about the last time it was used uh, in Libya. Do we know if it actually worked or accomplished goals? You know, I guess one of the things I'm trying to figure out is is even if we put it in over Ukraine, if if it would be effective. I mean, it's hard to compare what a no-fly zone would do in Ukraine against Russia with what a no-fly zone has done in the past. Okay. So maybe start with Libya then and and let us know about the past and then we'll talk about uh, the current situation. Yeah. So, I mean, it, Libya is the most recent. It happened in 2011. Before that, it had been about 20 years or 15 years at least since there had been a no-fly zone put in. And in that case, that pitted NATO forces against much weaker opponents which m- with much older aircraft and inadequate air defenses that are just no match for NATO's offense at all. Um, there's just no competition there. So, you know, that was an easier call, I think. Um, but also, historically, no-fly zones have done very little to stop the worst abuses in, in conflicts like that because the main conflict in Libya was conducted on the ground. It wasn't being conducted in the air. The you know the no fly zone was kind of a an option, but there was really more to be done on the ground. What do we know about where the damage to Ukrainian cities is coming from? I know we've seen footage of uh, Russian jets making runs over these cities, but in terms of the casualties being inflicted, um, are they coming from the air? Sure. So certainly there are attacks coming from the air, but what's surprising here is that a lot of the Russian attacks are, you know, long range cruise missiles that are being launched from Russian airspace into Ukraine. Um, That's surprising because most researchers, I think, expected Russia's air force to play a much bigger role in Ukraine than it has so far. Um, And in fact, like U.S. officials have noticed that Russian jets are deliberately avoiding parts of Ukrainian airspace because they're a little risk averse to losing their jets. They've lost 13 aircraft in the war as of March 17th. Hmm. Those Russian jets aren't even entering Ukrainian airspace. They're launching these aerial mounted cruise missiles at Ukraine from planes in the Russian side. That's been the case in, in a lot of this conflict. You mentioned that the last time a no-fly zone was used, um, you know, it was kind of no contest in terms of air power. What do we know? Um, and again, not saying that that this will happen at all, but but should a no-fly zone be enacted, you know, what do we know about uh, how much more difficult uh, Russian air power could be uh, to defend against than in Libya? So Justin Bronk, who's an aerial combat expert at the Royal United Services Institute, he's said in the past that Basically, this no-fly zone would be ineffective in halting the conflict on you, the the bombardments on Ukrainian cities, Um, and that's just because we haven't seen a show of force by the by the Russian air force, um, the Russian aerospace forces. 
And that is surprising. And it sort of calls into question what the Russian Air Force is capable of. I would I would say it's hard to say. Obviously, the Russian Air Force is historically, you know, a much more capable adversary than we saw in Libya and, you know, would be much more evenly matched with someone like the United States or the NATO powers. I just want to ask you in general, you know, as somebody who covers this stuff and has been paying a lot of close attention to it, how surprised are you, uh, not just with Russia's Air Force, but with the Russian military in general? I know it's been an ongoing theme throughout this conflict. Yeah, it's sort of daily we're surprised by things that is happening. We're very surprised by how many really high-ranking Russian officials are being killed in Ukraine. It's surprising that they're there on the ground with their forces. It's surprising that they're being lost so easily. Um, and frankly, you know, the thing with the Russian Air Force is, is shocking. We sort of expected, you know, the Russian Air Force would enter and take over the air power within days. And that just did not happen and continues to not happen. I don't think people expected Kyiv to to stand this long. We expected it to fall within days. It just hasn't. Um, The Russian forces seem a lot more disorganized than most people expected, most researchers expected. So given all that then, you know, aside from a no-fly zone, which doesn't seem like an option, what kind of direct aid uh, could turn the tide, would make a difference? I know already there are missiles being uh, shipped in and those those continue to come in, but... What options are there for for NATO countries to help beyond what they're doing now? You know, I think there's a question of at what point does Russia take aid to Ukraine as participation in the conflict? And, you know, we've already seen the the U.S. decline to send certain kinds of aid to Ukraine because they think that's maybe one step too far. But then you know, will send other kinds. So right now, I, I think the conflict's at a bit of a stalemate. We're not really sure what Ukraine would need um, or what the NATO powers would be able to give without provoking Russia into something, you know, a larger conflict. At that point, is there the potential for a situation in which, you know, a no-fly zone or even just more more direct intervention from NATO becomes a, a more obvious choice or, or necessary? Like, what would that situation look like? Or is that just a non-starter because of the nuclear question? I mean, I think it's certainly, in general, a non-starter because of the news, the nuclear question. NATO is just not going to get involved unless Russia attacks another NATO power. If something were to happen um, in Poland or, or right. you know, a member of NATO, it gets attacked. I think that would be where a no-fly zone or some other solution would come into play. But I just don't think we're going to see that unless unless another NATO ally is uh, provoked. Can you just generally maybe explain uh, what aid NATO countries have given and, and what they've declined to give so far other than the no-fly zone? Sure. So there's been anti-aircraft weapons given, um, javelin missile systems have been given, the U.S. also, there was a report that said they redirected some um, helicopters that were originally intended for Afghanistan um, to Ukraine, uh, mostly things like that. There's also been, you know, emergency food, surgery and medical kits, thermal blankets, sanitation supplies. You know, Germany famously uh, donated a batch of military helmets and then went back and, and gave some more significant military equipment. So it's mostly been aid like that. Last thing I'll ask you, just given uh, what you just mentioned about the conflict kind of settling into a stalemate, 
What are you and and your fellow reporters who are sort of looking at the big picture of this, what will you be watching for over the next few days or or week to see kind of which direction this might go? Sure. I mean, we've seen that Russia has a, an ability to regroup, rethink their tactics pretty quickly. Um, so we're going to be watching for that, watching to see, you know, are they going to get the aerospace forces more involved? Are we going to see more jets in Ukraine? How, how are their tactics going to change over the next few days? Because that's that's really where the question lies. Ukraine is doing everything they can. They're ready for anything. They're they're trying their best. And, you know, so we're really waiting to see how is Russia going to regroup? How are they going to rethink this conflict in the coming days? Without trying to be too cynical, um, just given what we've seen over the past week or so, what are the chances that that rethinking ends up with um, sort of a more brutal attack that more directly impacts civilians on the ground? Sure. I mean, I think we just we have to expect that Uh, it's a horrible thought. You know, there are already atrocities going on there. Uh, I think, you know, Russia has made some false flag campaigns against the U.S., against other NATO countries about using chemical weapons in Ukraine. And they did similar. uh, They've done that in other conflicts in the past um, in which they've then gone and used chemical weapons. So I think that's the big fear going forward. Abby, thank you for this. Uh, I feel a little more clear on, on what's on the table and what's not. Sure, no problem. Abby Schull of Business Insider. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca or find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. And you can email us, thebigstorypodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. If you do have a few minutes, though, instead of emailing us, we'd love it if you went on Apple Podcasts and left us a review. Why are we asking for this? Because negativity gets tiresome. And we've covered some controversial topics over the past few weeks, and it has brought the haters out of the woodwork. I told you guys that I would read you some of the comments we get. Here are a few reviews from our faithful listeners on Apple Podcasts. Sold to Big Oil. This podcast has been purchased and taken over by Big Oil. Terrible. One of the worst podcasts you can listen to. It's terribly biased. At least they left a review. Which you can do too and will be ever so grateful. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.